Welcome to the Better Call Daddy Show, the number one podcast where we admit no matter what happens, daddy has the advice we need to fix our problems. Introducing my dad, Mr. Wayne Friedman. That was good. It would be nice if you could also sing a song. What would the song be? You love Paris in the springtime. I just made up some words to it. I love Rena in the springtime. I love Rena in the fall. (laughs) That's right. That's good enough. (laughs) Oh boy. Let's dive in. Today, we have Elliot Clifton. He has led a very colorful life, and he says yes to adventure every step of the way, from online love to a presidential campaign, and he's here to tell it all. Elliot, welcome. How did you guys meet? Online, on eHarmony. Oh, yeah. She was getting divorced, and I was getting out of a 10-year-long dysfunctional relationship, and I decided that I'd like to have a wife instead of a child to raise, and so I started looking for one. 126 matches later, I ended up finding my wife. For her, one match later, she found her husband, (laughs) and that was 15 years ago. So Amazing. Tell me about those first 125, 26. A lot of them were really flaky. That's really what it was. And I was living in Austin, Texas at the time, too. And a lot of people were not looking for the same thing I was. Austin, Texas was weird. It was one of the weirdest places I ever lived in my life. Because everywhere else I lived in my life, it was usually guys who were the one-night standers. In Austin, it was the women. It was so weird. And it just so happened that Jana was getting out of her relationship. And she was getting divorced. And I was looking. And that's how we synced up. It actually took months before we got to meet, which was kind of cool. Because because we got to talk on the phone and build a relationship that way. So then when we finally got in person, it was weird because it was this person that you knew from pictures and so forth, but it was different because now you're in real life. Here's somebody you've been being very intimate over the phone with for months and months and months. And then you see him in real life and you're not really sure about how the physical thing, like, is it okay? Is it so anyway, it was good. All worked out real well. I have now started to help people get back into dating using online platforms. That's pretty cool. There were some aspects of it I really loved and some aspects of it I didn't care for so much. I've been out of the game for 15 years, so it's a lot different now even than than when we were online. In fact, I interviewed somebody yesterday morning who met online before there were websites, and they've been together ever since then. I met my husband online. Did you? Sweet. Congrats. Virtual <laughs> high five there, girl. Hey, That's hey. awesome. <laughs> We've been together for 13 years. Awesome. And, and you got some babies running around too, don't you? Four. Oh, wow. Well, there you go. Congratulations on that. You got twice as many as I have, and I feel like I've got a handful. With online dating, especially for divorcees, like how much would you disclose right off the bat? I think that any time that you start hiding things, you have problems. There are some things, I'm not saying anyone should ever hide anything, but sometimes you can burden people with things they don't need to be burdened with unnecessarily, especially early on in relationships. (laughs) We pretty much have a brutal honesty relationship, my wife and I do, because neither one of us wanted to end up in the situation that we were in. So I would think that if you're going to do that, if you're going to get online and do some online dating, I highly recommend that you're honest about it. Everything's built on something. And if you build something on false information, when you go back to repair that foundation, it's not nearly as easy to repair a foundation because that crack's always going to be there. I feel like the dating world and the career world is almost the same. 
without outlining expectations and services and the whole lot. I'll give you an example. I'm not really allowed to speak about who I work for or where I work with based on some particular policies. What I can tell you is that in my current role, I was looking at the possibility of leaving to do some other things. Review time came around in my workplace. I went to my boss and said, listen, I'm thinking about leaving. I don't want you to allocate any additional money to me based on my past performance when it could be going to my coworkers who have a desire to be at this place long term. I don't think that's right. Anytime I go into a business to be hired as an individual, I always have a very frank conversation with who is going to be my manager at that time. And it, it's really simple and it always goes like this. At any point, if you're not happy with my performance, come to me and tell me that you're not happy with my performance and tell me what you want me to do differently. Tell me how. And since I've had that conversation with my boss in regards to not giving me a raise and so forth, uh, a pandemic occurred. <laughs> In the middle of the pandemic or the beginning of it, I realized that the company that I was working for was taking care of everyone in a really superior way and that I felt a lot better being here than wanting to go off and do my own thing for a few years. I went back to my manager and said, look, I'm going to be honest with you. I've changed my mind. I'd like to stay. Luckily for me, they were very receptive to that. What do we have if we don't have trust? I have never met anyone to have that open and honest of a discussion with their boss. I honestly envy that. I don't particularly care for hypocrisy in people, especially myself. I'm very critical of myself. It's something I've had to work on with self-love and so forth. My mentality has been through much of my life, excluding the last few years, that I hold myself to a higher standard than I hold anyone else to. I criticize myself more so than anyone else can criticize me. The challenge that I've had is that because of my self-criticism, I also also hold everyone else to much higher standards. Where did that criticism stem from? I'm not really sure. I haven't been able to isolate where it comes from. I grew up in a very supportive family. Honestly, it probably came from some of the attitude of my parents. They were wonderful parents. I am the product of full-blown hippies in every sense of the word. They were very loving and caring and very supportive throughout my entire life. But also, it's a very different world we live in today than we lived in a year ago. And it's a very different world than it was 40 years ago, 40 plus years ago when I was born. Information wasn't as free as it is now. When my parents were raising me, we spent most of our time gardening or fishing or swimming or we had a TV. It got three channels off the air and it was a hand-me-down black and white. There are a lot of things that we learn as children that carried on and then get passed on to another generation and so forth. And I think a lot of that was generational stuff. My grandfather, he grew up in a house with with dirt floors, very hillbilly type of area. My grandfather and his brother left, uh, I think on their 18th birthday, they both took off and they went and joined the Air Force. They walked to the recruiting station, signed up and joined the Air Force. That's a very different environment than today. That a lot of times it's easy for us to vilify different points of history without understanding that they didn't have all of the knowledge and ability to gain the knowledge that we have today. Harrison, Arkansas, when we first moved there, more more than one person had bragged about the last black person being hung off a bridge. They don't do that anymore. There have been changes. Harrison has gotten better. But I only bring that up in this context, which is my, at the time, liberal hippie parents coming into this type of culture generated a lot of criticism of that culture. Tell me about that presidential campaign you worked on. 
My friends that know me on a pretty consistent basis have a running gag or joke about what I'm going to do next. Somebody's got money on a hot air balloon pilot. I was asked to work on a presidential campaign back in 2004. I turned it down, actually. A friend of mine was the director of operations for the campaign, and he called me and said, hey, would you come work on it? I need somebody I can trust to, to deal with the mobile devices. And that's what I did. I took care of all the mobile devices for that campaign. Here's the scenario. I have been working on the campaign for right at a week and a half, maybe. I was still feeling my way around what I could do, what I couldn't do, what I needed to do, etc. My boss, who happened to be my friend, came to me and said, look, there's a principal here on the campaign. Now, when I say principal, what that means is an important person on the campaign, the person who's running for the office, or their daughter, or son, or wife. There's an inner circle of principals on a campaign. My boss came to me and said, look, we have got to get this device out of this principal's hands. We've got to get them to a different carrier that has a more robust device for them. So when they come in, and this is what I was told verbatim, I need you to make sure that they do not leave with that device. You need to make sure that they hand you that device and that you swap it over because we've been trying to get this done for months now and we don't know when we're going to have another shot based on the schedule. So the principal came to me, brought the phone. I said, hi, nice to meet you. And then they said, look, I need my voicemail off of this before you port it or if it will go over then fine if it's not going to move over i need to take this with me and save the information out of it before i give it to you now here's the problem if this principal was going to take it and leave with it i was not going to do what i was instructed to do and so i without checking without knowing with very little mobile device experience, a lot of technology, but very little mobile device experience, I thought in my head, of course the voicemail will port over. Why wouldn't it? That just seems like a simple thing that should happen. Why not? That's not the way it works, as I would find out. I said, yeah, don't worry, it will be fine. Then, adding insult to injury, I didn't even check before I did the swap. I let them go, I did the swap, I got everything over, it was working, everything was great, and I checked the voicemail, and it said, and we got that, that thing that you always get when you first set up your voicemail. There's no voicemail. How would you like to set up your voicemail? And so then I went through the process of losing control of my bowels, if you will, right? Like I was concerned because this particular principle I had already been told about before I even had to deal with this. I had already heard that they were rough on the staffers and that a number of people had already been let go based on their poor performance. All of this factored in and I started thinking, huh, okay, what can I do? I'll use all the leverage I've got. So I called the carrier that had the old voicemail. I went up the chain of command. I went as far as I could. I used all the leverage of a presidential campaign, right? As much as I possibly could. Even with all that leverage, I still got the same answer. I'm sorry. You should have saved it beforehand. So it's done. All right. So now I had a decision to make. There's nothing that can be done. I know there's nothing to be done at this point. So it's just a matter of taking the new device, showing them how to use it, and explaining that the one thing that they asked for wasn't there. I had basically two choices. I could have just said it didn't work the technology had a glitch and I'm sorry your voicemail got lost in the process I tried there was nothing I could do or I could take responsibility for my actions and say look I messed up I screwed up I'm the one that did this and so that was what I decided to do knowing the right thing to do and executing the right thing are not always easy you know in your gut what's right I do the interesting thing is is that so a lot of the times the principals don't end up in the mailroom where my office happened to be so 
I had to go up a few flights of stairs or a few stories and go meet the principal and, and turn this over. Well, it just so happened I had to meet in front of a number of other principals because they were working on schedule. So I went ahead and said, okay, yeah, all right. So I walked in and then I just, I knew, I knew I was getting fired. So I had to accept it. I showed them how to use their device and they took to it and, and so forth. And then they asked the question, is my voicemail still there? So I just looked at him and said, I'm sorry, it's not, it's gone. And there was some weeping and gnashing of teeth and a number of questions that they asked. I just said, look, I'm sorry. It's my fault. I messed up. There's nobody else to blame. I should have checked before I ported this for you. And I didn't. And I shouldn't have told you I could do it without knowing that. When they realized there was nothing that could be done and I had given the apology, it was really kind of a magical moment for me. They looked up at me and said, oh no, thank you. Thank you for all your help and your hard work on the campaign. I really, really appreciate it. I wish somebody could have snapped a picture of my face at that moment. I'm sure my jaw hit the floor because I knew I was getting fired. As it turns out, there are many functions on a presidential campaign. One of those is what's called advance and scheduling. It actually got to a point where I had become good enough friends with this particular principal that the scheduling and advance people would call me and say, hey, could you deliver this bad news to them for me? Because I don't really want to tell them that, you know, this is what's going to have to happen and so forth. The principal and I went on to have a very friendly relationship for the remainder of the campaign and then even after the campaign some. Did you get a pink slip? Oh, no, absolutely not. Depending on how you look at it, the whole campaign got a pink slip at the end. The way this works is they have what they call a transition team on every campaign. The transition team is the one that makes the decisions on who's going to stay and work at the White House and work with the administration. And they had chosen me to go to the White House. One of the guys that was on the team called me in and said, what position would you like when we win? And I was like, well, none. I'm going home when this is done. I should have snapped a picture of their faces. I didn't want to work in Washington at that time. Have you ever been to the White House? I've been to the White House because we worked about five blocks from it. It was a good time. I recommend anybody do it. You learn a lot. How did that experience change your perspective? Before being in Washington, it's very different to view something from the inside out versus the outside in. This is true for relationships and pretty much anything else. I'm sure all, all of us have, or most of us have, seen people or been the people ourselves in a terrible relationship. And everybody around you says, oh, for the love of God, you really need to do something because this is killing you. When you're inside the bubble of that relationship, it's so much harder to see that than when you're on the outside of that bubble of the relationship. Very similar to Washington and government. The most stark thing that I realized was that there is a huge difference between the big government that we think about and the people that control the country. Government is huge, but the people that control the government, what is that, 500 people total? 600 people tops control basically the fate of 330 million people. I think there's a misconception, or at least there was for me, that this was all one piece. I think that we miss some really key points when it comes to politics. I try to stay away from politics a lot, especially right now because everything is so divisive. But I think we get it wrong 99% of the time. The way that this country was structured was at a time when most people in this country could not read. They were illiterate. There was no way to read policy. There was no way to read and understand everything that these intellectuals were doing. The system of government that they set up was one of what they called representation. It was never intended for you to vote on someone based on their policy. That's not what the fathers meant. They thought if people will vote for 
good people. If they'll vote for them, then when they get into a situation where it's really important to make a good decision, we can trust that these good people are going to make the best possible decisions. But that's not what we do today. Today, we look at policies and say, am I pro-life? Am I pro-choice? Am I pro-capital punishment? Am I anti-capital punishment? And then based on what these people tell us, we say we're going to vote for them. But what people fail to realize is that once someone gets into office, they now understand stuff they never understood before. They now have perspectives they've never had before because now they can see a bigger piece of the picture. Legitimately, no politician can go out there and say, this is what I'm going to do. Let's take a case from our pandemic that we're all dealing with. Early in this year, we had experts telling us not to wear masks. They learned that this particular disease, this particular virus is far more contagious than what they thought. Now they're saying, look, we need to save everybody's lives, wear these masks. And so the perception from outside of the scientific community in the public, now there's some kind of weird debate going on about the science of it. Well, Fauci was for it before he was against it. He's just flip-flopping. No, it's called learning. For a long time, I didn't understand why people made choices that they made, especially in politics. People do not make decisions based on logic. They make decisions based on emotion, and then they take logic and try to wrap it around so that they can support their emotional stance. I've always been a dreamer my entire life. I am a huge, huge fan of the Peter O'Toole film, Man from La Mancha. He sings The Impossible Dream, and if you listen to the lyrics of The Impossible Dream, nowhere in there does he expect to win. He expects to do the right thing, to march into hell with a heavenly cause. That is the important thing, I think. I think the important thing is to chase perfection in hopes of catching excellence. If we all do that, the world becomes a better place. When the campaign was over, I also had to decommission all of the devices, which meant that they all had to be wiped. Let me just say that I was privy to some conversations in those voicemails that made it painfully obvious that the two sides are a lot closer than anyone would ever imagine. In fact, the one that really stuck out to me was one of the voicemails that said, okay, well, now this is all over. Let's get together for lunch for a post-mortem. You know, these are people that vilify each other in the public eye. Have you ever contacted your local congressperson? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I have. It's never fruitful. Anytime I express an opinion, I'm met with a form letter that basically just says, we're doing great things and, and we appreciate you giving us your opinion, but, you know, why don't you go take a hike because it's not the opinion we care about. And that's the problem. That goes back to the problem of policy. From politics and the campaign, you became a mime? <laughs> The reality is, is that was part of my life that's very different than my life is now. I did go to school. I was a drama major in college. I've been on the stage or talking my entire life one way or another. And I had an opportunity to go for a few weeks and study under a man named Todd Farley, who was Marceau Marceau's star student. He was trying to take art and bring it into the church. And I, at the time, attended church that also embraced the arts. I went up to St. Louis and studied under him for a few weeks, then had to make a decision as to whether or not I wanted to attempt the full-blown thing. I just was not skilled in that. I loved the illusions piece of it. What were the mime classes like? 
Mostly it was, especially in ballet class, it was like the teacher saying, okay, plie, do the, and you watched all the other students and you were like, okay, if you've never done one, it was mostly like just trying to hide in the background enough to, that I could try to follow along and see other people doing their, their kinds of things. There was a lot of time to practice. They use different hand positions to get movement. They use different positions of the body and then they use those positions together to create movements and illusions. It almost looks like break dancing. Yeah, and in fact, the break dancers that were actually there as well, they were the best one. About six months after I had that experience, I was a counselor at a camp for some kids and they were doing videos of different songs. My kids, they were talking about this, that, and they couldn't really come up with anything. And I said, well, you know, I've had this idea since mime school of using these mime statues. And I said, well, what we could do is we could take this particular song. So we found a cave. We stuck all the kids in the cave in these different statue attitudes. And when the music hits at the right time, all of the statues come alive. The kids won first place for that. I'm glad I've done all sorts of weird things in my life. I've played poker professionally for a while. I've done search engine optimization work and consulting work, uh, stuff like that. Obviously, I've done IT work for a lot of years. I was a cave guide as my first job. Have you ever been to Mammoth Cave? You know, I've never gone to Mammoth Cave in Kentucky. Tell me about Plain Ordinary Dragon. I like Plain Ordinary Dragon. It's not as fabulously successful as I would like for it to be at this moment in time, but we've been going since September of last year. We're up to 65 episodes. We've done pretty well in that. It has touched a few people. When I started this whole thing, I said, if I can just make a difference in one person's life, then it was worth it. Plain Ordinary Dragon, it's a passion project for sure. It's really about trying to empower people to put their voice in the world, not worry about being messy and just doing it. Failure is a key component to success. There's no reason to worry about failure. You learn. You learn from that. How did you get into poker? <laughs> I've been a bit of a bohemian throughout my life. I was in Texas for some reason. I don't remember why. My brother and my cousin, one of them wanted to play poker and I didn't know how to do it. And so they kind of taught me the game and I had a blast. Then we started to talk about putting together a little poker club for us. Anyway, I just got fascinated with the game and I got fascinated with the fact that somebody could make money playing a game of chance or what is considered a game of chance. I thought, well, why can't I learn how to do this? At one point, I decided I was going to be a tournament bass fisherman too. I had that experience with my brother and my cousin, and then I went to the presidential campaign. Somebody was talking about poker, and I thought, huh, maybe I could try online poker. I could play poker. I played with my brother and my cousin, so I put 100 bucks in and proceeded to lose it in a matter of hours, and then I thought to myself, that's disgusting. I feel sick about this. I thought, you know what? I'm going to learn. I'm going to learn how to do this, and I went to overstock.com. They had all these poker books and I could get them for like really cheap. I read every book. I won my way into some event. It was a free roll event, which means you don't have to put any money in to play. And if you won a certain level of the tournament, then you got to go to meet Phil Helm. He's recognized as a really great poker player. And then I got into playing online. There's a fundamental piece to being a professional poker player that a lot of people don't believe in, but it is a mathematical fact. And that is, you must have the correct bankroll to play in the game you're playing in. I was tired of the stress is why I left. If you know what's in somebody's hand and you know your beat, you need to lay it down. I was playing online. I had a straight flush. I had it on the flop. If this other guy has the ace of clubs, my straight flush doesn't matter. And then on the river came yet another club. I had it from the very beginning, and on the end, the dude moves all in. 
I know I'm beat. And so I called him. Sure enough, the guy held the ace. That is one of those lessons where you realize you have to know. Years ago, there was a place called Party Poker. They used to allow people to watch. One night I'm playing No Limit Hold'em. We had somebody that came in and was a bully. So this guy came in and he was just using aggression. So when a new player comes to the table and they push all in, you can't call them. He had built up about $1,600. I figured out what he was doing. He never bet big when he had a big hand. The first time we tangoed, I had something like ace-king suited. He pushed and I re-raised and, and we, we went to the river and I lost. And so I bought back in. We got into another tussle. I beat him. I took him down. So now this guy's starting to go on tilt a little bit. And here was the fun thing. I had in my hand six two offsuit. I was in the big blind, so I was really last to act. And it went around to this guy. He called, and I, I didn't. And on the flop comes six, four, three. So I had top pair, worst possible kicker known to man. And that dude moves all in. As it turns out, he had nothing. And then I won, and he got mad, and he left. Poker is a game of life. Thank you so much. Thanks. We'll see ya. Grandpa, what did you think? Elliot is quite a character, and he really sounds familiar because you and I, uh, Marvin and Rose, we're also a little bit of perfectionists, wouldn't you say? He does stand for accountability. He is a down-to-earth guy. I'd like to think that I am as well. He, he doesn't really care what other people think or are going to say because he's his own worst enemy or best advocate. Honesty is a very important trait that we should all have and demonstrate to the highest level. And if we make a mistake, own up to it. And still, rather than saying that I made a mistake and covering it up, he says, hey, I'm just going to speak the truth. I'm going to work my damnedest and hardest. Compassion for what you do and who you are makes us all better people and the whole world would be better if we all could demonstrate these tendencies of wanting to be the best that we possibly can be. And isn't that what we want to pass on to our children? That type of philosophy, that we want to do what's right and be the best that we can be? You want people to be able to talk to you straight up, not yes you did that, but not always just say no, but are willing to tell you how they really feel about a certain situation so that there's a chance to find a solution. What did you think of him being a mime? That was interesting. He really has tried a lot of different things, hasn't he? Poker is a lot like life, just like chess, where you got to make the right moves to get the best results. But in poker, sometimes you're doing various calculations. I like what Elliot said also, is that sometimes you have to know when to bluff when you're in position, but sometimes it's better to just fold and take your losses and wait for the right hand when it's more in your favor. The main thing from Elliot is that he's always willing to learn He's always willing to try new things. And he's honest with himself. We all have our own unique map, which helps us understand ourselves and others. Increased self-awareness is key to maximizing your career and life. The UMAP assessment reveals your strengths, values, skills, and interests. There is also a UMAP youth assessment for kids. To get your personalized UMAP, go to myumap.com. That's Y-O-U.com today. And make sure you use the code BCD, like better call daddy. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and tune in. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG.
at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Yeah.